I think in order to get the majorities we need when we have elections, we need big cultural change. So I'm interested in music and cultural efforts that are improving people's well-being and therefore creating more appetite and resilience to consider information critically. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest for this episode is Jory Craig, an expert in political disinformation detection and response, who is currently head of digital integrity at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. She was previously vice president and director of the digital practice at the polling firm Greenberg Quinlan Rosner, where she worked on campaigns and causes around the world. We had a good conversation about how she grew her expertise and what she's up to at ISD and in her independent consulting. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Jory Craig. Launching a campaign? Change Digital launches campaign websites in as little as 72 hours, using your templates built with your goals in mind. Choose your template, submit website content, and we'll take care of the rest. You'll also get social and email templates that are easy to use and match your website's look and feel. For less than $1,800, launch your campaign with a professional digital presence starting on day one. Visit changedigital.us to learn more and get started. Well, hi, Jory. Hi. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Hi, my name is Jory Craig. I am an advisor uh, to organizations, media groups, leaders on how to counter disinformation. I work in a number of capacities, um, helping groups independently. I also currently sit in a role at a think tank that is focused on countering extremism on and offline. I have been in a number of roles as the tech and disinformation space have evolved into what they are today. And I am previously based in D.C. and now go back and forth between D.C. and London. Who would have thought that you could make a career around combating disinformation? This is not something that I was aware of when I was growing up as something to do. It's funny. Yes, my mom jokes all the time about how back when I was a kid and she was so worried about the time I was spending online when the internet was just sort of instant messenger, she laughs about it because it seems to be sort of a basis for the career that I have today. And it really did become unavoidable that if you had a digital fluency and you also found yourself in a space that was focused on elections, campaigns, you were going to come into this issue. Did you grow up in a political family? Sort of. I am from Chicago. Um, I have folks from all different ideologies in my family. I have a wonderful mother who uh, kept me always abreast with what was happening in the media around domestic politics. And I had a wonderful mother and a wonderful teacher who pushed me into Model UN when I was young. And so that pushed me actually into looking at the international landscape. I always went with my mom to vote. 
But I will say that it it took a while for me to really understand that, you know, young people weren't paying attention and should be paying attention in a much different way than they were. And I think that's improved since I was younger, but there's still some work to, to do on that. You're only mentioning a mother. I had a father. Um, he was a football coach um, and he taught me a lot about leadership, I think in general, also about building consensus. Um, but he certainly wasn't someone I was talking politics with. Um, a number of my family sort of played football in Kentucky, grew up in Kentucky. I have siblings in Southern Indiana. I have family in California and New Jersey. So across my family, I think what qualified me to be good at the job that I came into was really having different conversations with people with different mindsets, much less anything I learned in school. And actually, I sort of failed to mention, but my original background, what I came into first was public opinion research. So I was trained as a pollster and a focus group moderator and an analyst, and we were looking at people's attitudes and then simultaneously being the person who had digital fluency, I volunteered to go to Moldova and work on the digital side of some work we were doing there in 2014, 2013. And that is how this all sort of began, where I was looking at both how campaigns were playing out on the internet. I was simultaneously listening to voters and their opinions of government, of politics, of campaigns. And that was sort of a natural progression um, into having an opinion on disinformation and how to counter it. So I noticed you were a good student going off to University of Rochester, which is a, an excellent school. You studied international relations. And do you think that what you picked up in college was useful going forward? Mm. Tough. Well, um, as a girl from the Midwest who was the daughter of a football player, coming to the East Coast was a big culture change. And being at the University of Rochester, I learned a different vocabulary I didn't previously have. Um, I met people who had different value systems than I had, who placed a higher priority on things like, as cliche as this sounds, wealth and other areas of um, sort of accolade, that the culture of college helped me. But I don't know that I had some wonderful professors, but I don't know that that education system sort of is what prepared me to enter the workplace. I almost feel like my eight years at my previous job is almost like a PhD. And I feel like that's where my education really happened. And I learned a lot more there. I like to ask that question because I know people in college who currently start to think that the major, what you pick in college, what you study is going to be so determinative of your future. And when I talk to people about their careers, I don't see that happening. Sometimes the major is, sometimes you, you know, you're well on your way to being a doctor or a lawyer in a very straightforward way. But most people, they're learning how to think, they're learning how to relate to other people, but they're not setting their course so firmly at all. I, I couldn't agree more. And I tell folks who I speak to in college who are stressed about their courses and what their major will be that they should be asking people in the workforce, in areas they're interested in, what they think about their course load and thinking much more about the course load they're going to walk away with and how that's going to show up on a resume and less about what they actually are consuming in those classes. I mean, you know, for example, 
I, I spoke to a young person recently who couldn't decide between communication and something like marketing. And I said, really, I would just focus on the internship you're going to get this, this summer, you know, because it is a lot about the way you talk about what you learned and how you can talk about specialization. I will also say I did not take advantage enough of the professors. If I could go back and the advice I give now, I would have just spent so much more time speaking with professors, asking them questions, bouncing ideas off of them. And frankly, for me, I got an award, which was shocking to me when I graduated. Couldn't believe that I was getting an award for anything. And it was for a commitment to practical politics, which is funny because it's very in line with where I headed. And I swear, I think it was just because I was the person in class who was saying, you know, I'm hearing you on all this theory, but how does this play out? And I have that question for sort of academics still today, especially the academics who were sort of on the front line of telling us how to think about disinformation. Really great to have a white paper, but how is this practically playing out? I think students can do a lot to challenge the academic systems if they get in there and sort of consider themselves able sparring partners with their professors. As I understand it, you spent some time at the European Parliament while in college, which is very much practical politics. How did that come about? I studied international relations. I knew I wanted to study abroad. And um, again, my mother said, you know, you can study abroad, but you you have to work. Um, I always worked. I was always doing some type of work. Um, and I'm glad she pushed me in that direction. And so I did an internship period while I was in college at the European Parliament. And it was an amazing, incredible experience. I actually got to work in the office of a Maltese MEP. Um, and Malta, you know, at the time, it's a really interesting country. It's smaller. Some of my friends had been put in the offices of bigger countries. But because it was a smaller office, um, I ended up learning so much and doing so much. And on my very sort of first month in the office, there was a vote of no confidence in Maltese Parliament. And it was just perfect demonstration of things I had learned in school in real life. It was great. And, and actually, uh, the folks I met in that office went on to show up later in my life in the conversation around freedom of speech and disinformation. So that was a great full circle thing later, which if anyone's interested in listening to more information about Malta, it's a fascinating country. Uh, but it was really lucky. And I would say of what I experienced in college, that was the most impactful semester by far. And that's the thing I talked about most when I was in the workforce. I used connections from that period while in the workforce. So the more folks can get into internships and try to have some work experiences, even if it's not in Brussels, even if it's in the same town that their university's in, I think that's really worthwhile. Well, one thing leads to another. What, what other internships did you do? Well, I actually, um, I didn't do internships in the summer for the most part. I worked, um, I worked with special needs high school students and I worked in a concession stand uh, on a beach in Chicago for two summers. I taught high school students mock trial and business etiquette. Uh, so I was in a position where I was not able to do an unpaid internship so I was working and I tried to find work experiences that would be adjacent to the field I was interested in. But when I graduated, I did not have a job planned. I was planning to you know, spend time teaching high schoolers again in the summer for a summer program. And then I showed up in DC and said I would spend two weeks there and try to get a job. And if I didn't get one, I'd go back to Chicago. And I I found my job at GQR just sort of randomly by expressing to people that I wanted to do something related to international relations. GQR is a very much a name brand polling 
and strategy group. I had Anna Greenberg on the podcast at one point. That's a very much an international firm, not just a, a national firm. And you spent a good part of your career there kind of climbing up through the ranks and getting different jobs. Tell me about that experience. GQR was a wonderful, wonderful experience. I feel very lucky that I found them. They are a, a pretty established firm. Uh, they've been around for a while and they sort of had a hat trick of clients before I got there. They did Bill Clinton, Nelson Mandela, and Tony Blair. And so they had a pretty established international profile. One of the things I liked about their international profile is that because they had been around for a while, they weren't necessarily just Americans going around saying, we did it here this way, do it there that way. And maybe they did that before I got there. But by the time I got there, the team that they brought together were really folks who had specialties related to international relations. That was their experience. They spoke multiple languages. I worked under Jeremy Rosner, who's the R in GQR. And he was an, a wonderful mentor and had been doing this for a while. And I, I was really lucky that he believed in putting young people in, in the game. And if you were willing to work hard and you were willing to know your stuff and take the job seriously, you really got to do a lot. So in my second month, I was traveling to Eastern Europe and so excited because that's really all I wanted to be doing. And, um, yeah, I just kept raising my hand to trips. And I really had no interest in being involved in digital. That's sort of the interesting comment on the moment, which is I didn't really have an interest in, in being in the digital team, but I was an intern. There was a job on the digital team. They encouraged me to apply just so I could become a full-time hire. I said, okay, but I want to make sure that I'm not only a digital person. And then a couple of years later, I was running the digital department because of the trends that sort of came immediately following my start. So yeah, it was really great. And then everything really changed when Trump was elected. The whole space changed, my role changed, the relevance of having international experience changed. So I almost feel like I had multiple very distinct chapters of being a GQR. I'm always impressed by people who jump at the chance to travel when they're so young. I think I might have been a little fearful. I guess I traveled a little bit with my brother and stuff at that age. But for work to show up in another place to negotiate language and travel and different currencies and trying to be an adult at the same time, somewhat for the first time, that's pretty daunting. Where did the wherewithal come from to take that on? Well, you know, I think a little bit of it is um, American ignorance slash confidence. You know, I, I, I felt, I felt I could do it. I think a little bit is having the parents I had and, and a coach for a dad who sort of just always encouraged me that, that I could really do a lot of the stuff that I wanted to do. And then I had such great structure at GQR. So I think, you know, if you are in an environment where your employer makes you feel safe, you trust them. I didn't feel, you know, like I'd be left out on my own or anything. And so I was really just excited, but I don't know. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing that I had absolutely no fear around the travel. I just wanted to do it. And that was sort of my goal when I graduated is I just wanted to find a job that would pay me to travel. What, what skills did you pick up along the way as you worked in the regular polling part and then into the digital part? What were the 
things that you were picking up? I am really grateful for the education I had in polling because both qualitative and quantitative research, because um, to be able to critically analyze public opinion is an amazing skill. I went through very rigorous training at GQR. They are extremely rigorous. Their methodology is extremely tight. And because I had that training, when I then was trying to look at social media data and social media conversation, which is the exact opposite, it is not rigid, it is not organized, it's very hard to pick which metrics you're supposed to use. You know, does a like mean that I actually like something? Does a share mean that I actually really like it? What if I'm sharing it to say how much I hate it? So evaluating public opinion on social media was so different from the structure that I had on the other side, but that grounding I had in being able to understand, okay, if you're in a focus group of 10 people and one person is talking the whole time, that person's commentary shouldn't be representative of the wider public or even that, that cohort. On the flip side, if you see one person being very loud commenting in a social media space, it's kind of similar to that person dominating the focus group, right? You shouldn't say this person is representative of what everybody thinks. And um, when the conversation after Trump's election boomed around how do we think about what's happening on social media started, I felt very confident weighing in because I was able to say, well, what universe are we looking at? You know, this is sort of something I comment on a lot, but so much of what we understood at that time and what the media was covering was focused on Twitter activity. And the reason it was focused on Twitter activity is because Twitter had the most open API, so we could look at that data but the most easy, and because journalists spend a lot of their time on Twitter, so they thought that that was an okay thing to do. But it was only 24% of the public, and it remains only 24% of the public. And so if you come from a public opinion background, you know that you're not looking at the full pie of folks. So very quickly, it was easy to say, okay, I think we need to be looking at the full pie. And how do we look at the full pie? Oh, we need to have access to Facebook data. Oh, we don't have access to Facebook data. Here's a conundrum. And that was super easy for me to spot right away um, from the, the polling training. Um, the other thing that I learned is that you need two, three totally different sets of vocabulary speaking to presidents, prime ministers, people who want to run for election about um, what's happening online, depending on their age group. And I really had to tailor my skills to being able to speak to all different generations on these issues. And that really continues to be relevant. It continues to be really important in the work I do because we're all arriving to social media and, and the digital landscape from a really different starting point. You've sort of alluded to the change that Trump brought and intertwined with the change that social media, the advent and the massive take up of it across the population. I mean, even the 24% you're alluding to as being small is a, a gigantic number of people to contemplate playing around with short sentences posted somewhere. How did that change the polling world and your world? Those two things. Countless ways. Um, well, you know, social media around the time of the Arab Spring, so especially post-2012 and the Obama digital 
magic era, um, we were still in a place where social media was primarily seen for good, seen as a force of democratization. And people were really just trying to understand how to use social media data alongside traditional polling. Um, Of course, we learned about Cambridge Analytica and other groups who were using it for targeting, social media advertising, getting more advanced in, in how it was targeting. But but for the most part, it was kind of an addendum to all other things, and it wasn't exactly taken seriously. I mean, my first years of working in digital, I was just helping people create Facebook pages for their candidacy. That lasted for a while. Before Trump was elected in other parts of the world, so I worked all around the world, and I worked in Africa, I worked in Europe, I worked in Latin America, Central America, the Caribbean. Um, And the digital trends were changing quite a bit. So, you know, there were folks manipulating how many views a video would get. There were dozens of people sitting in an office just trying to inflate Twitter metrics. There were um, just a lot of different use cases that were not reaching the mainstream in the U.S. of folks, how folks were talking about what campaigns were doing. This was just not on their radar. When Trump was elected, there was this vacuum in expertise. You had this interesting environment where so many, almost all of the experts and talking heads and pundits who had been listened to prior to Trump's election had been wrong. And so who had answers? Who was going to be somebody who knew what happened, had anything to say in these postmortems, et cetera? Um, and so it brought in a whole bunch of outsiders who had not previously been on the table and a lot of openness to be critical of the systems and the way things were happening in the U.S. Um, So the first thing is that Trump's election made digital a whole lot more relevant, and it expanded how people were talking about what about digital is relevant and how should we be approaching it. In terms of polling, polling gets a very bad rap. And to me, it's not because, you know, true truly sound polls are not useful. They're extremely useful. And I stand by the fact that a nationally representative poll is still the most useful thing we have for listening to the public. What we get wrong is our over-reliance or sole reliance on only polling data or relying and, you know, sort of overly interpreting quick polls that aren't very representative that show up in the media. What kind of changed, although not exactly in all the best ways is people started doubting polling. They started investing in different technologies to measure public opinion. There was a real battle to maintain that, you know, polls still needed to be used. You have more, I think, polling outfits out there who aren't doing polling in a methodologically rigorous way. And that's not helpful. Um, And then more people were willing to say, okay, well, if I used to sort of listen to my pollster as my main go-to person, maybe now I'm going to listen to my media digital ad targeting guy, which actually was a lot of guys who had been doing traditional media ads who then just decided they did digital too, which had other problems because they're not the same. They're not the same at systems. Uh, But yeah, it just kind of disrupted the whole space. And I wouldn't have been relevant if that hadn't happened, there would have been, you know, hundreds of people who would have been, you know, experts in the U.S. on digital strategy that would have been more relevant for me had Hillary won. So interesting moment, interesting uh, turn of events. I had not tried or sought to be 
in the domestic political sphere. I just sort of had to show up there as the result of events. So, I mean, you talked about this vacuum and expertise that I take it that you walked into. Who else would you say um, was one of those outsiders that had the background and the perspective that you had or in different ways that showed up at that time? Sure. I mean, in some cases, it's people who were sort of regular U.S. folks who just maybe hadn't been listened to. So Angelo, who's the president of Media Matters, he was one of the early people that I was nodding my head with. When I talked to Angelo, I was just really impressed by the rapid fire knowledge that comes out of that guy. It's a great example. Angelo is one of those people and there are other people in the space people who I met very early on. And it was sort of those of us who really had a theory of the case, who were not just sort of trying to take advantage of this moment in this vacuum. We didn't need new information, right? We had the information in our heads. I came in very humbly. I was probably the newest and the most irrelevant. So I think I spent a year saying things like, I don't know everything. And then I threw that out because I realized I wasn't getting anything wrong, so I could should maybe just stop saying that. Um, but a person like Angela, we meet, immediately were syncing up because he knows his stuff because he's been seeing it. He knows what's being missed, and, and that is the stuff that's being missed, whereas there were other folks who came from other industries, who came from TV advertising, et cetera, who you would hear them and you'd say, well, yeah, you're hitting some buzzwords, but you're not really raising some of the stuff that we're all agreeing on. Tara is another person I would say she was kind of an insider who came from the inside and and sort of decided I need to rebuke some of what's happening here on the inside. There weren't as many folks as I would have hoped who came from international and were able to cross that line in the same way. Um, I, I think that a lot of the people who were commenting from the international space were policy folks, folks coming from you know government policy think tank world, which for which is super useful, but f- actually a lot of the advice that was coming out of that world was not very helpful for political campaigns or any organization that needs to be offensive. Um, a lot of what was coming out of that world was mitigation and defensiveness, and that's actually very bad advice when you're trying to win an election. So some of the smartest people that I met along the way who I really was nodding my head with and agreeing with were organizers. I don't think they were considering themselves disinfo experts, but they had been complaining about a lot of the stuff that, you know, folks like me came in and identified as perhaps things that were missed during the 2020 election. And they did have qualms with the way campaigns were being organized and how the insights from organizing weren't necessarily being inputted back into the campaign and the consulting culture here. And I say this as a consultant, um, the consulting culture in the U.S. is pretty wild. And there's been movies since that make fun of this. But the idea that, you know, you're going to have people come in and give advice about a, a hometown that's not their own. And it's just very strange. And the reason it was so foreign to me is because when I would go abroad, I would have to spend a, a month qualifying myself to be there. You know, like, why? how could I possibly understand, you know, how to run an election in some other country? And how, you know, and how arrogant of me to think that I can. And so you really had to spend time earning the trust of the people you were working with and treating them like partners and making it a two-way dialogue and saying, hey, I just might have some insight from other experiences I've had, but I'm deferential. You didn't see that at all in the consulting culture in the U.S. And, and I think it has an impact on sort of the rippled effect 
of how Americans were experiencing elections at that time. And so that was a huge commonality between myself and and the organizers I was sort of coming across. You referred to having a theory of the case. What did you mean there? What is your theory of the case? Ooh, the most consistent theory of the case that I have had is that one of the most detrimental forces, I'm not saying it's the most detrimental force, but if you are a person who's coming at this from where we're coming at this from, which is DC politics, one of the most detrimental forces was not the echo chambers voters were finding themselves in, but the echo chambers that the professionals, the campaigners, the politicians, the sort of liberal elite were finding themselves in by not seeking input outside their own world. And that showed up in so many different ways. It showed up when you think about who really is calling shots on the campaign. It showed up in the way that digital wasn't invested in. It showed up in this consulting dynamic I was talking about, this Twitter dynamic I was talking about. You know, sometimes I refer to it as sort of the deplorable vibe, the whole deplorable moment that um, was this sort of premonition during the 2016 campaign when the deplorable comment came from the Hillary campaign and it was so run with on the other side. To me, that encapsulates a lot. The fact that that was said, the fact that that was effectively used as a mobilization tool to me, really displays the distinct distance between the elite and a lot of other voters that was then taken advantage of by bad actors who also come from the same elite universes in many cases. They just paid attention. Do you think that parallels the McAuliffe parent comment and the Youngkin campaign, the way they seized on it? I think that there are certainly, unfortunately, people taking advantage of this stress parents are going through right now and the stress that uh, all of us are going through right now after two years of being in a pandemic. I think it has a lot to do with tone also, how quick anyone's willing to say they know what's best for anyone. Everybody should take a big piece of humble pie. Almost every campaign that I've worked with, I worked with a lot of incumbents and Across the board in many different countries, advice we were giving them sounded something like, you have to start your messaging with, we've done a lot, but there's more to do. We're acknowledging that we don't know everything. We haven't nailed everything. We know that we are still indebted to serving you and making your lives better. And folks get nervous about that because they they hear something like that and they say, oh, doesn't that mean like we're admitting we failed? Shouldn't we just list out a long list of things that we're good at and that we did well? And it's like, if you do that, you don't even have an audience because they've closed their ears to you in the first 10 seconds. But if you start by acknowledging where they're at, maybe they'll say, well, you've done a few things. Maybe they'll be willing to hear what you have to say. And it's fascinating the way that that plays out all over the place. I think it's a hard time to be an incumbent especially an incumbent that's interested in governing responsibly and not just putting the blame on somebody else for the problems, which seems to be the other mode that you see out there quite a bit. I wonder if you could just think out loud a little bit about the political moment we find ourselves in, in this country to start with. It is unlike anything I've seen in my career and I've been around for a while. I just feel like it's such a hazardous time when one party has fallen for 
some kind of cult of personality. I don't know how to characterize the Republican Party right now. How do you see the fight between the two parties now from your perspective? Well, it's really tough. I think it's really tough. I think we've had a broken system for a long time in terms of, you know, getting into gridlock. And so unfortunately now what gridlock looks like is a lot less even reasonable gridlock if there's such a thing and more outlandish gridlock. And I think there are a couple things happening. I mean, I think that there are information voids for Americans where they are hearing from one side and not the other. And they have a hard time even knowing what is one side or the other, or they have a hard time coming up with a sort of information diet that's going to reasonably inform them. And I lean on trying to really, wherever we can, anywhere we can, local elections, you know, the right is very good at promoting people to get involved in local elections. I just really think one of the only hopes we have is increasing participation getting really involved in understanding how things work, taking part in how things work, using all the democratic systems available to us. I mean, I have been amazed that when I would listen to focus groups in other countries compared to focus groups in the U.S., people in other countries know more about their systems and they know more about their leaders than people in the U.S. And I don't think there's really an excuse for that. I understand why it happens. We have a lot of freedoms and luxuries and privilege, and we haven't had to pay attention, whereas folks in other countries have to pay attention or else they'll go into sort of an authoritarian state or they lose the chance at democracy. So for me, I think participation, really important. Now, I'm not saying that I think that the responsibility only falls on the individual because that's ridiculous, but I do think it's something that's in the control of an individual person. They can participate. Maybe they can't change what's happening in Congress, but they can change things On a smaller level, probably, they can use collective action to move things on the state level, probably. And so I think we should have more conversations about that because I think otherwise it's just very depressing. It's depressing to look at what's happening on the Hill. It's depressing. It's confusing. I talk a lot about listening to understand and not to respond. And I will say I am in a listening to understand moment. I said that after Trump was elected too when I'm ready to respond or when I think we all should be ready to respond, I will get out there. But even when I'm giving advice about how to respond to disinformation, my advice is a lot about try to listen and understand, try to get there first, because I don't think we can just come up with a fact sheet and have that be our response clearly. You know, clearly that strategy is not working. I think that the incentive structure for the people in government, I think the incentive structure for wealthy people in our country, unfortunately does not align with boosting participation in democratic processes at the moment. Hopefully that will change, uh, but that's sort of where I land. You sort of land with exercising your democratic muscles, it sounds like. Yeah. And getting, exercising your democratic muscles, but also like make it a lifestyle. You know, if you're, if you have something you're really into music, exercise, the environment, a hobby, make that a hobby, make it cool, make it trendy Uh, And we've got to do it all the time, not just every four years, not just every two years. I mean, get involved. I love hearing from young people and I challenge young people all the time. And I say, so great to hear you saying these progressive things really sounds like you have the right idea and the future is intersectional. However, what are you going to do about our majorities? And if we can't get the majority, what's the plan? And your peer group doesn't really show up. So what's the plan? And I just say, 
be as in this as we are, you know, and I look to the opportunity I was given by my boss to get involved early on and have actually a role in the work I was doing really early on. And I sort of try to do that with everyone I work with too. I don't see any reason why given the state we're in, we should still be enforcing hierarchical structures. And that's something that's amazing about campaign world in the US. You know, people can kind of be very impactful if they start by making coffee on a campaign. I think we need to apply that up all around. The current folks aren't, they don't seem to have the answer. So we need to get the folks who have different ideas into positions and ready for positions like that as fast as we can. I'm reading this book called Jesus and John Wayne. I don't know if you're aware of it. It sort of traces the evangelical movement from the tens and the twenties of the last century to now and how it increasingly radicalized and, and sort of lined up the Christian right with the Republican party and, and things like that. And one of the themes of it is how much sort of hierarchy and patriarchy and masculinity in a more antique sense, um, is part and parcel of this worldview that we're combating here. I grew up in a in a family that was where my dad was scrubbing the floor and doing the dishes and being an equal partner. And there's a very strong counter movement. And in a certain way, Trump embodies this. Like he scoffed at the idea of doing diapers, I remember. And like he's he's exactly this weird fit for a process that's been going on, on among evangelicals and on the right that's completely counter to the young people that you're talking to and what they've absorbed from the culture. And we on the left hardly see that because of the way the world is separated, but it's, it's powerful, I think. I grew up Catholic and I grew up in a very strong parish community that I still you know, respect and feel that the, the parish kind of raised me in a lot of ways. And I had a very good experience growing up Catholic, but a lot, but I sort of came to understand a lot of people have not good experiences with religion. And I no longer sort of identify with that religious ide- ideology exactly. But there was a, an Atlantic article in 2017 and it was a David Brooks article. And, um, in the article he quoted, uh, John Balby, who's the father of attachment theory. And uh, there's this quote from Balby that says, the human life is best organized as a series of excursions, short and long, from a secure base. And his claim in this article was that liberalism didn't provide for the secure base. And at the time, I was a young person out on the East Coast, far away from most people I had grown up with. I was feeling that my excursions, short and long, piece was very handled. And I was sort of missing the secure base and community that a lot of my upbringing had provided. The thing that really is like the chokehold on some of these um, concepts that are so unhelpful and toxic, like the patriarchy, like some of the really problematic law and order regimens that really embolden institutional racism. I think one of the reasons that they have a chokehold is because they do provide some sort of security stability, certainty, community in some cases that people really rely on. And I think that it's happening now where there is being community built out on the side of, you know, what progressives are pushing in some cases. 
that people can plug into, but not fast enough and not really at the pace we would need and not as inclusively as we would need to really match these age old, hundreds of years old systems that people identify with as the thing they're connecting to as their secure base. I think institutional racism, like I could do a whole podcast on the way in which I have learned just how much that structure is keeping us down as a country in ways that had never even crossed my screen as I was growing up. And I grew up in Chicago, which is wild. Um, And so you can pick any, you can pick a few different systems, but when I look at like, okay, everyone has asked these questions, like why is it people who sort of believe in religion, which focuses on love or focuses on kindness, like where do we get so lost? The only thing that I have ever consistently really come back to is this community secure base thing, because you know, if you look at some of what the right does and how they organize, they are more willing to engage with people with a more manual, less cost-effective strategy to engage in pushing what they believe in than we are a lot of times. And I'll give you an example. You know, there was an article that came out about how Turning Point USA had basically built a troll farm, but they were working with young people, teenagers, to post on social media pro Turning Point USA, much of which is disinformation, some of which is just conservative ideology, messages on social media. And imagine they're all showing up together. They have a purpose. Their families feel like their kids have a purpose. Maybe they make some friends. Maybe they feel like they're tied into something bigger. Super, you know, and I think a lot of people have experiences like that on on the left as well. But I think that that's coming back to sort of organizers and what organizers, true organizers really understand, not organizers who just sort of fill out the metrics that NGP Van asks them to, but real organizers who sort of infiltrate, real organizers who are trying to build community and they're singing songs and they, you know, are growing and they take care of each other and solidarity is really promoted like that. We need more of that, I think, to counter some of these systems because otherwise, People side with Trump when he says, I don't want to do diapers because the whole other alternative is just one big threat to their identity. And that we don't provide a space for where they're supposed to go. We just say that identity sucks and shouldn't be one we listen to. And who gets excited about opting into that? Who gets excited about opting into a, a, a situation that is just the way you are is a bad way now? Hey, look, I mean, I get so frustrated about sexism and I get frustrated with the men in my life who are trying, but ultimately it doesn't help them if I just shame them. And um, Brene Brown uh, talks about how shame is not an effective motivator. And I agree with that. And I think we could take a huge amount of shame out of the way we talk to the other side. I agree with that. Why did you leave GQR and go to ISD? And what is that? Well, I left GQR because I led a big team focused on disinformation in 2020, and I really was burnt out um, and not really able to keep functioning and working at the pace that I was working at after January 6th and 2020, and I needed to step back from what I was doing. I needed to evaluate what was going to be the most effective way to apply everything I had learned because really working in disinformation in a pandemic 
staring at a screen, staring at the worst things on the internet on a screen all day. It's not great for one's mental health. And it's a fire hose. Did you feel like it was a losing battle? Yeah. Yes. There were wins. There were ways that we could win. I mean, so much of my work was keeping people from making mistakes that disinformation sets people up to make. So falling into traps. Sharing the the disinformation. Yeah. Repeating the message in order to try to refute it or something. I mean, that's a huge part of my job. But yeah, I mean, of course it's a losing battle. And what was, you know, somebody asked me like, okay, what was the worst part? The worst part was not what I was observing. The worst part was being the person who then went to people in positions of power, in decision-making places, going to those people and saying, look, we've got a problem. There's a lot of people being persuaded by these ideas that are dangerous, harmful, et cetera, and not being listened to and not being sort of taken seriously because the information wasn't coming to them in a format like a poll or like the report out of a TV ad or like the data produced out of modeling based on the voter file. I think the team at GQR, the team that I that I used to be part, part of that I'm still very in touch with, I think they do a phenomenal job getting as close as we can to something that's solid, that feels like something folks can stand on when it comes to evaluating social media data. But it's ultimately the wild, wild west on social media on the internet right now. And so it's just hard. It's just hard to get it to where it needs to be. Not to mention... Most of us who know what we're talking about are under a certain age, and there are just still people in positions of power who aren't going to take folks like that seriously. So that's one reason. One of the reasons I came to ISD, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, is a think tank that's been around for 15 years. They have expertise in the mainstreaming of extremism from all around the world. They have expertise in tech policy. They have expertise in human rights and how to uphold human rights in different activities that relate to democracy and elections. And so I was really interested in learning from them, learning from people I had met and sort of subject and spaces that I had dabbled in while I was at GQR. But to be very honest, they had trauma counseling built into the offer. And that was a huge motivator for me because it's just really hard to do this work and be in a culture like the culture in DC or like in American politics that's so grind oriented. I think there's this great resignation movement. Obviously, you're hearing about there's sort of a rest revolution that's coming. Um, You're entitled to rest. But I don't know that that's very much upheld in practice all the time on campaigns. And um, I think that the emergency language around democracy is dying, the climate's dying, uh, the internet's the the darkest place in the world. Like it's just not sustainable for folks who don't have, again, that secure base sort of locked in. And a lot of the secure bases people grew up with, I think kind of fall apart. So for me, it had a lot to do with a lot of those factors, but I'd I'd be lying if I didn't say it didn't have a huge amount to do with trying to recover and sort of reorient my mental health so I could engage again. People on the front lines pay a price it's a grinding war out there. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. And I, I always am, I'm always fascinated sometimes by some of the, the folks who really engage in these political debates, campaigns, this industry, and they're really there to make money. I struggled this with this, right? Like there was this huge opportunity for anyone who had anything 
to do with disinformation to make money. And one of the reasons I stayed at GQR for so long, there were many reasons, but I could subsidize my offer and offer really, really low price offers to help people understand disinformation because I was subsidized by the polling model. And so I didn't have to fundraise. I didn't have to raise money, but um, there's just so much money and there's so much money to be made. And it's just such a, it's so unfortunate that that is the motivator because the conditions we're in really are getting more and more dire. And so I, I hope that we can sort of come to some sort of collective breakdown in order to rebuild in a way that's helpful and gets us to maybe reorganize how we engage in these subjects. But I don't pretend to have all the answers. I just know that for sure, you know, listening and taking stock is always a valuable thing to do. What have you learned at ISD? What have I learned at ISD? So much. I already knew this because I had read about it, but I've sort of seen in real time the care and the way in which, you know, you can go into some of the extreme spaces and the real dark underbellies of the internet and understand what is motivating those communities. I've learned a lot about the intersection of the way tech policy is being developed in different contexts and how that is going to have an impact on the way voters experience political campaigning and the way campaigns run and operate and the way leaders govern learned a lot um, about that. Um, and then I love this, but I'm working with people from all around the world. That's just extremely valuable. I love to be in an environment where I have to combat the notion that I am an obnoxious American because it makes me better. Americans really do show up with quite a bit of arrogance. And I think that it is very healthy for us to keep that in check. And, you know, foreign affairs really never, ever ranks high in a public opinion questionnaire about what people are concerned about. It never ranks high. It's one of those things that's like an inherently elite um, uh, opinion to have that people should think more about the rest of the world. But I don't think that has to be true. I think, you know, if you look at supply chain issues, if you look at the internet and how it has no borders, that there are so many ways in which the future will just have to be more global and globally minded. And I know People have launched whole opposition movements to that concept. But I think young people, 100% due to their time online, will just be more naturally to reject those who are saying that globalism is inherently problematic. Everything in my career would be, would suggest that it's it's really helpful to be around people who have different perspectives than us. Yeah. And I've learned how to like have a little bit more of a work balance, although I'm not nailing that entirely quite yet, but I'm working on it. I'm trying my best. So, Jory, what do you know that you wish the average American citizen knew? And what do you know that you wish the elites that should be taking your advice and aren't always listening or weren't always listening uh, in the 2020 cycle knew? What would you like to get out there? For the public, I wish they understood that social media companies were profiting off of their attention. So when they are doom scrolling, when they are spending more time on their phone than they are helping their kids with their homework, when they are going down a rabbit hole and thinking that they're not pretty enough or not thin enough, when they are posting and becoming sort of obsessed with keeping up with the the grind of being relevant online, there's so much money being made off of that. The experience we're all having online is not something we have a lot of choice in, say, in control in. I wish Americans understood that 
you know, when they open up their social media account, it, it doesn't have a lot to do with what they've chosen to engage in. It has a lot to do with their behavior and then the ways in which their behavior has been analyzed to make money. And it's interesting that the point you asked me that question and I answered with that answer. It's interesting because in 2020, at the start of the year, felt like I was focused on one opponent being in political campaigns, the Republicans. You know, I was working with the Democrats focused on the Republicans. I finished the year feeling like I had two opponents because I had to think as much about how to deal with the platform failures and platform policies that were making things so restrictive just in trying to get simple information out to voters. I had to think as much about that as I had to think about the other opponents that were out there. Are, are you saying that the platforms, the changes that they made were for the worse? For sure. I mean, even the changes they made that were for the better, they turned off. They turned those off as soon as they could to, so they could keep making money. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's really something that if I could talk to anybody, if I had to pick anybody in the country, no matter where they are, where they're from, what they're focused on, that would be relevant to them. We have huge majorities spending time on Facebook, huge majorities using social media, and that's not changing. And so I just, I think that conversation needs to keep happening. Um, when it comes to elite, oh boy, I would tell them that the time that they spend creating their media diet solely based on Twitter activity, the time they spend focusing on caring about what a certain set of media and journalists are saying about them, all of that is time that they are neglecting to give to the wider public, to other opportunities to connect with the public, to other trusted messengers that are on the ground, offline with people. I'll give you a good example of, of something that happened in 2020. Um, you know, in 2020, we my, my team found an example of a right-wing super PAC group targeting um, voters uh, with voter suppression content that used LeBron James image. They were using a picture of LeBron James and they were directing voters to a website that said it was not safe to use mail-in voting. And when we discovered this, I spoke with a reporter and a lot of folks would have just spoken with a reporter, gotten a hit in the Washington Post and been done. We really pushed to make sure that that information went to ESPN, became an ESPN push notification, went to pastors and coaches that the teams on the ground in those states were working with. We made sure they were talking to their congregations and their teams and their communities about what we had seen. And not just, hey, this happened, but hey, this happens all the time. And hey, be resilient, be on the lookout for types of people who are going to try to use these social media deceptive practices to tell you something that's not true. I got so much resistance from people on trying to go further than just the Washington Post article. That's crazy. Why? Because, because it was extra time. And I think most people's incentive structures have a lot to do with what person with a check mark next to their name knows who they are and knows what they're up to. And I think people seriously underestimate how effective it is to use traditional communication strategies and press relations to achieve the kind of reach that we need to win the way we need to win. I'm not saying that you can't influence a huge swath of the public by engaging in traditional comms practices. I'm saying that is no longer enough. 
It's not enough. And so if you if you live in a purple state, if you live in a place where you need to push past a minority position, you really should be diminishing that part of your strategy and getting creative. If the amount of effort to put out disinformation is far less than the amount of effort that it takes to properly educate people. I heard you say, I think on Pod Save America, something about five to one, try, try to aim people at making five positive communications or explanatory communications for everyone that you see incoming. How can we be optimistic if it's so much easier to, to do ill than to do good in a communication sense? I think you have to pick your area of, you know, your personal sphere of influence and then measure your impact based on that. I think that there's a lot more. And the point I was making on Pod Save America was there are a lot of really easy, low barrier entry activities that folks can be doing that help this situation. So I go back to the example of basically having this conservative disinformation group run a troll farm. They're just organizing humans to do a task. Okay, they've deemed that worth it. Uh, There's no reason. We have more people than them. We continue to have more people than them. And so there is power in collective action. Now, what people sort of, how they can reorient themselves is instead of being so focused on, again, having their action be based on seeing the negative or uh, false information, if they were as amped up, if they were as excited in participating and being part of the process and getting involved and just, just making that their hobby, making that their interest, we would start closing the gap naturally. Because if I, if I really care about participating, if I really care about my issues, if I care about making more people, not just, not just, people who already agree with me, but I want to grow my movement. I want to make people who don't understand, understand. I want to increase participation. All of that very naturally would start to close the gap. It would have a ripple effect. Um, It's funny how people say, well, they just assume like people should just think like this. So I'm only going to communicate when I hear that people don't think how I think. How silly, you know, like, why aren't you also just often talking about how you think and feel and what's important to you? I kind of just encourage people to remember that there's all of this dead time where they're not confronting disinformation that they could be filling with good information about the things they're so mad the disinformation is getting wrong. Um, and many choose not to. And sure, like, I, I guess people would say like, oh, should it be my responsibility to always be communicating. I don't know, kind of, we're kind of in dire state. So yeah, I think it is everybody's responsibility. And I have to remind myself too, you know, I have to remind myself that I need to be clear on the platforms where there are people I can influence, not just on the platforms where people know me and agree with me. I think it's a responsibility, but it's tough. One of the areas where we have a big struggle right now is around our election systems and, and, efforts to undermine them. It occurred to me while you were just talking that as much as what Trump did in the run-up to 2020 and afterwards to say this election's getting stolen from me, we on our side in a certain way are also undermining it by saying the other side is trying to cheat, right? We see cheating 
he may see cheating or he may just completely be making it up. But it starts to be like an escalating dialogue about how bad it is and each side trying to, quote unquote, fix it. What advice do you have to our side about how to communicate around this election system problem that's getting ginned up and also which legitimately the other side seems to be clearly trying to limit the ease of voting in certain places? Mm-hmm. <sighs> that is a tough question. And I think about that a lot. Again, I made the decision that I didn't think that it was necessarily the most impactful to only be operating from a partisan perch, because I think that it is inherently flawed to say, you, you know, democracy only survives if you're with my side or that side. Like it, it's just flawed. That doesn't work. You know, our democracy can't be cut in half. That doesn't make any sense. And so I think that we need a message that does not say that one side is for democracy and one side's not, because I don't think that is practical. I think we need more messaging during off years, not as it relates to which party we need to vote for. That has to do with here are our systems. Here's how they work. Historically, here's how they, where they failed. Here's how they've been strengthened. Here's how they've been changed. Here's who liked those changes. I think that when civics got cut out of the education budgets, and then because education is controlled on a state level, um, I think we lost out. And I'm not talking about anything very complex other than just simply understanding what mechanisms are in place that make voting and democracy possible. I have the experience of working in other places where elections are, are far less functional and reliable and are new and are not guaranteed. Um, And again, you have people really trying to focus on what is going to be the determinant of whether this is functioning across society. I think people have to get in the game and, and care to say, care to have an opinion about the standards they're going to set for what they're going to look for to know if an election is functioning or not. And I think politicians have to really think carefully about how to make their messaging more inclusive. I mean, I do think that at least on our side, we say we're trying to bring people in. I think both sides do too much of saying this side's trying to ruin everything, that side's trying to ruin everything, even though I, of course, have the position that I think there is, there are some actors who have a certain affiliation who are more oriented toward keeping people out of the process. But yeah, I think we all have to be careful when we're using language about what makes an election functional. It's a tough question. And I I just, I tell people all the time, is the person you're listening to, do they have a legal background? Who pays them? Who is behind them? I think we can all be a lot smarter about looking at how people who have the microphone got to where they got and how much we should be listening to that listening based on that. I mean, I ask my uncles all the time when they talk about some of the Fox News pundits that they listen to, I say, do you think you would have been friends with that guy in high school? And uh, in most cases, they say no. And then they laugh and they say, that's kind of funny, you know, and then they they go on to listen again. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're still working on actually having that hold. But um, yeah, just more, more questions about who's calling the shots and trying to take control. But it's tough. It's tough. Are you also working for clients right now? Yes. Yeah, so definitely everything I've said here today is sort of just me, Jory, um, outside of my capacity as anything. Um, my work with ISD and then I also do work with clients. What kind of what kind of clients currently? 
I still do work with uh, folks in DC, big organizations trying to combat disinformation, um, C4, C3s. Like who? Uh, like Emily's List um, and others. I don't know that I should talk about that, but um, I can tell you that, but I don't know that I want that in the podcast. You're sort of have changed, it seems like, from significantly from being the staffer at a polling firm to being maybe more of a public thinker and uh, consultant. How has that transition gone? What do you like about it and what do you not like? Well, uh, you know, it's always nice to be part of a team and it's nice when you're on staff because, you know, you sort of have a a methodology you're abiding by. And I had a lot of freedom in my job to create my own practice and run my own team and develop my own methodology that was within the GQR sort of ethos. When you are sort of outside of that and you are on your own, like I am, and you're taking on multiple roles and you're working with think tanks and you're working with clients and you're advising different types of people, A, you have to keep up with a whole bunch and you have to kind of stay on your toes about the way you want to show up. You're just your own person and your voice is no longer grounded in this other ethos and protected by it or sometimes held back by it. It's definitely harder to be without a team that you've worked with for a long time. I mean, I I think anytime you move. Do you think about hiring a team and becoming more of an organization in your own right? I, you know, I struggle with that. I really am enjoying doing the sort of non- political and um, approaching things from a less partisan point of view. I'm really enjoying the work I do with ISD. I do sometimes think about, um, you know, the type of people I would want to work with if I started building out a team and what the best way to do that is and what the best structure is for that, because there are just so many amazing leaders that I'd love to partner with. But honestly, (laughs) I am still trying to figure out how to exist in this moment we're in, in a sustainable way. I really cared a lot. I became a manager like pretty young and I was lucky to have a manager myself who gave me some pretty tough lessons early on about what you can't do when you're a manager and how you have to behave and, and how you have to be responsible in different ways and be an example. And so I think and I read and I care a lot about building teams that are sustainable and healthy. And I've not yet cracked the code of how you engage in these types of fights and truly manage to take care of yourself. So I'm learning from groups like ISD who who do a good job with that. I'm listening. I'm watching other teams. I think the New Georgia Project is a really good example of a group that prioritizes that under NSA's leadership. And um yeah, one day maybe. Even if I were to develop a team, you know, I don't know exactly what work we'd be taking on. I really continue to think that a lot of the change will happen outside of electoral politics. I continue to think that electoral politics are extremely important because they're sort of the lever we have. But I think in order to get the majorities we need when we have elections, we need big cultural change. So I'm interested in music and cultural efforts that are improving people's well-being and therefore creating more appetite and resilience to consider information critically, which kind of sounds like a loop-de-loop and wow, that's far away from no, what we're talking about. No, that makes a lot about, of sense I, to me. Yeah, but I don't really know how we do it without that. And I think um, movement building is really important, but if movement building is only happening within this dichotomy, I think it's it's going to be 
routinely depleting because it's just going to come up against this sort of gridlock mode our bipartisan our our two party system is in right now. And I'll also say a book that had a huge impact on me um, right before and when I was sort of deciding to leave my job was a book by the current Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, um, called Together, and it's about loneliness. And he has a section in there where he talks about how there is research. It talks about the loneliness epidemic and how people are feeling lonely and how that's so not great for us as a society. It also cites this research in an example of how when we meet people and our starting point is anything other than a political political or ideological difference, the chances that we, you know, experience that person and come to some sort of agreement and become much, much more moderate toward the difference in ideology just becomes dramatically higher. And so I think we have to all come into knowing one another in a different way than what our partisan position is, which is complicated, right? Because I'm saying get more involved and participate more in politics, but I'm also saying participate more in your society, in your culture, in in your in knowing your neighbors, in giving a crap about what's going on with the people around you. I think we're so desperate and hungry for it. And I think until we actually take that seriously, there's just so much for bad actors to exploit because we're all feeling a little unwell. So that is like what I really would like to dedicate my whole life too. And if I figure out how to match my current skill set with advancing that mission, I will let you know. Um, and I will get right on it and I will build a team and hopefully we will have a good time trying to advance that cause. But I'm still in um I'm still in thinking mode, thinking and listening. Well, you talk a lot about how trying to figure out how to exist in this moment. And I think one of the ways that I've existed in this moment is by talking to people like you, which I find very inspiring to see the work that's getting done. And I really appreciate what you've been up to. Is there um, a question that I failed to ask that I should have? Hmm. No, this has been really interesting. And I really appreciate the opportunity to sort of talk about myself as a person in addition to the work, because I think it's useful to have more conversations about that. No, this was really great. I mean, yeah, I, I I look forward to sort of continuing to listen to the people that you bring on as part of this series. And yeah, if you if you find anyone who really seems to have a silver bullet, let us all know because I think <laughs> most of, most of the people I know who who I respect, who I sort of have known for a while, we're all in this moment of sort of thinking through, okay, what is exactly the next thing to focus on? Um, we but, we really could use a silver bullet, so uh, I think we're all on the hunt for that. I'm afraid we're all going to have to keep up with the slog and glad you're doing that. So anyway, thanks for coming on today. Anything else you want to say? No, thanks so much for having me and, and for doing this and for keeping us all talking about these issues. Okay. That was Jory Craig. She is at isdglobal.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.